morning, church. As we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 specifically, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So grateful that you have braved the weather. When I got into my vehicle this morning and left the house, my truck told me it was 14 degrees. That's really cold, and so I'm grateful that you have come through the cold and that you're worshiping with us this morning. I know across the U.S. there there are many people that are not able to worship in person this morning, and so that's not lost on us, but the privilege of being able to be here this morning and to be able to get here safely and I'm grateful that you're here, and also we've got good things to look forward to. We've got baseball weather on Thursday. It's going to be in the mid-60s. And so that's the the swing of the weather in our nation this week is, is really pretty remarkable. And so let's warm up. Let's warm up as we worship. Let's warm up under the Word of God. As we listen to our text this morning, which is a pivotal passage in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, It is the day that is pivotal and meaningful and memorable in so many ways. It is a spiritual growth spurt in God's plan to make his name and his fame spread across the world. We've got to answer a few basic questions this morning. What happened on the day of Pentecost? What did it mean? And what does it mean today? Let's listen to the word of God this morning, starting in verse 1 of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And 120 followers of Jesus that are gathered in worship and prayer, they're waiting on the Holy Spirit to descend upon them as Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1. They're all together in one place and they're worshiping on the day of the of the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, Penta, 50. This is 50 days as a Jewish festival after the most important Jewish festival, which is the day of Passover. The day of Passover signifies God's miraculous deliverance of the Israelites out of the hand of slavery, out of the tyrannical grip of Pharaoh himself. And so the Passover is that day commemorating that miraculous deliverance. Go 50 days after Passover, you get to the day of Pentecost, which is a festival of first fruits. Two baked loaves are offered to God as a commemoration of his provision for people, provision for people in the Old Testament through the manna and through his uh, guidance through the wilderness here. So we've got 50 days after Passover, the weather is better. You have really this festival-like environment where people, family, and friends are able to gather together in Jerusalem. It's a, a time of celebration. It's a time that is sort of akin to us, for those of you that are uh, graduates of schools here in Alabama, whether it's an Alabama homecoming or Auburn homecoming or Sanford homecoming or a UAB homecoming, just think of a homecoming weekend and you're going to get a little bit of the feel of Pentecost. You've got all of these people, family and friends that are not living in Jerusalem, that are able to come back to Jerusalem for this festival, for this time where family and friends are getting together and seeing one another. That's the environment. Don't miss this. On the festival of first fruits, God is going to send his Holy Spirit and the first fruits of of Pentecost are even greater harvest than we could possibly imagine. Those 120 followers are going to be added to by 3,000. So in the course of hours, we've got 2,400% growth. This is, my friends, a spiritual growth spurt brought on by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how it happened. Verse 2. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A couple of things here. Notice that, that Luke has not given us a blow-by-blow journalistic accounting of everything that happened here. What he is doing is he wants us to see, but he also wants us to feel. And so to feel, he's given us similes here. He's given us analogies here. We've got like a mighty wind, tongues of fire here. He has given us what they saw, but he's also given us the power of what is occurring here. So as we listen to this text here, we're reminded that they're experiencing something that is far beyond normal apprehension. That's far beyond what would be expected on the day of Pentecost. A couple weeks ago, I was at home. It was one o'clock in the morning, a Sunday morning. I was awakened by the sound of a mighty wind. I was awakened by the sound of limbs crashing around our house and a tree falling into our yard. And I realized the next morning that an EF1 tornado had come a mile behind our house. And for those of you that are Homewood residents, some of you experienced a, a direct hit of this. And continue the, many of the areas of Homewood have continued to recover from, from the devastation and the wind and the power of the wind. I tell you that to say it wasn't something that I just heard. And again, I was a mile away from sort of the direct path of that hurricane. But there was a whistling and a howl that was coming through with the power of the wind. But there was also this creaking in the house. There was this pressure in this house. And there was something that was powerful that was occurring. This is what those early followers are experiencing. Not just the sound of wind, but the power of wind that is coming. And then we have this other description of not just what they heard, but what they see. They see a fiery presence that come upon them and divide into separate flames like tongues that individually dance over the heads of those early followers of Jesus. Wow. I mean, that defies sort of an easy categorization there. It defies even understanding here. For, for many of us, we read this and it sounds more like a script out of an uh, episode of Stranger Things or more like something out of a novel of, of Stephen King here than what's going to come in the pages of God's Word here. But understand that these Jewish followers of Jesus, fire and wind, they're not, they're not just, just passing symbols. They're symbols of tremendous significance in the Hebrew Scriptures. So when the wind comes, those early followers of Jesus would have a frame of reference as Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 37, where you have the valley of dry bones and the wind, that same word for wind in the Hebrew language is the same word that is used for spirit. And the wind sweeps over those dry bones and sinews wrap around it and the flesh wraps around it. And those, those bones begin to dance and those bones become alive. With the very presence and power of God that is, that is bringing life to a dead nation, the, the nation of the Israelites. This is the wind that is being referenced here. The power and presence of God. Think about fire. 
and how these early Jewish followers would have, would have heard and seen fire. It has this powerful, symbolic reference in the Old Testament. Just think of Moses going up on top of the mountain, and out of a fiery bush, God speaks to Moses and says, Go back. Go back to Pharaoh. Go back to Egypt and say, Let my people go. And as Moses delivers this message from the very presence and power of God, and God brings them out of Egypt, and he's going to lead them in the wilderness with what? His fiery presence. Fire by night. So fire, once again, is the power of God and the presence of God. Do you see what is happening on the day of Pentecost? Like no other day before, these individual followers of Jesus have the power and the presence of God that is descending upon them. There is no going back. This is a line of demarcation. This is a new chapter in God's dealing with his people. This is an empowerment where he moves from the collective dealing with the people of God as the Israelites, the, the individual in filling of his spirit in followers of Jesus. His power and his presence are on full display. And as this own full display, there is a miracle that occurs that we read of in verse 5 and following. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let's unpack this. What, what exactly is the miracle? Do you see this in verses 5 through 13 here? What is the exact miracle of verse 4 where the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance? Well, they're strands of interpretation of this passage that go in different directions. There's some Christians that read this passage that this is the gift of a supernatural heavenly language that descends upon those early apostles and they're speaking an unknown heavenly language. And I do believe that the Bible talks about that gift and talks about a unique heavenly language, but it's not in this passage. In 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 Corinthians 14, I do believe that that's what Paul was referencing. But here in this passage, the unique gift of the Holy Spirit is not a heavenly language and a unique utterance here. Rather, it is the empowerment of those early followers of Jesus to speak in known earthly languages. But good, go back and look. I'm not just making this up. Verse 6, look with me. In verse 8, look with me. In verse 11, look with me. A crowd, verse 6, came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking. Do you see that? In his own language. Verse 8, 
How is it that each of us hears them in his own language? Verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. You go back to the text. We have all of these regions, all of these nations and peoples that are described, that show up, that this festival of Pentecost, the Jewish people living in diaspora, living across the Greco-Roman world here that show back up. And so what's amazing is all of these people are showing up in Jerusalem. And in verse 7, they're absolutely astonished and amazed because the Galileans are the ones speaking in these different languages. And their remarks is a, well, frankly, it's a dig is what it is. It's an insult, maybe a sideways insult. The Galileans, these are the last people that those, those people that were gathered there would think would be educated enough to give the gospel in all of these different languages. It would be one thing if they were Roman followers or uh, people from Athens, sort of the highbrow kind of people 2,000 years ago in this place. For the Galileans, they were seen sort of quote-unquote as backwoods. For those of you that are still trying to figure out exactly what's going on here, let me give you an equivalent. Any Andy Griffith fans here this morning? Okay, got some hands. So just imagine an episode, I'm making this up here, imagine an episode of Andy Griffith where Ernest T. Bass goes to the UN. Just imagine that. (laughs) And Ernest T. Bass before the UN declares the gospel in perfect Mandarin. That would be surprising. (laughs) That would be astonishing. And now some of you are looking at me with these glazed over eyes thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about here. Ernest who? So let's, if you've if you got some Mayberry rust here and that reference doesn't connect with you as much, just let me personalize it here. Right now, our Hispanic congregation is meeting right across the way for 35 years. They've worshipped And they're worshiping in Spanish right now. Pastor Byron is going to come up and he's going to begin to preach. If I just handed the baton to John and said, see you later, John, finish up the sermon. You've heard it twice already. You can finish it up here. And I walked down, I walked over there, stood up and preached in perfect Spanish. Pastor Byron would be astonished. (laughs) My wife would be astonished. I would be astonished. This, this gets us a little bit closer to what is occurring here in this passage here. This is the sort of thing that's happening at Pentecost here. There is this miraculous enablement of the languages being spoken so that all that are gathered can hear the gospel in their own native heart language. And the crowd is absolutely puzzled. Here are all these different languages here. Verse 13, they begin to mock and say, somebody's had way too much to drink. That must be what's going on here. And we sort of stand 2,000 years past this event, sort of with the crowd, trying to figure out what does this miracle actually mean? Do you know the day of Pentecost, is there is something that is miraculous that is occurring But what in the world does it mean? Can I give you three, I think, profound truths that are embedded in this miracle of the day of Pentecost? The first is that this miracle has a meaning, and that meaning is the declaration of God. Pentecost is God's declaration that the gospel is for the nations. Don't miss this. 
One chapter before, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you guys right here, you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to go not just to Jerusalem, and not just to Judea, and not just to Samaria, but you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so what we have in Acts chapter 2 is a supernatural, spirit-empowered growth spurt is what we have. God is accomplishing through these disciples. He's accomplishing something they cannot do in their own power. And it's a reminder that the gospel isn't just for a little group of people living in Jerusalem then. But God's heartbeat and his mission has always been to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is always pressed beyond just a holy huddle to every tribe, to every nation, to every tongue. God's heartbeat knows no borders or limits. It never has and it never will. God's love transcends nations transcends tribes, it transcends languages. Pentecost is really a coming attraction and a preview of what is ahead for us in heaven because we're going to get to heaven and we're going to look around us and we're going to feel a little bit like Pentecost is what we're going to feel. I don't know what language we're speaking in heaven. Maybe we're just speaking them all. Maybe there's this wonderful cacophony of languages that will be in heaven. But this I do know in Revelation chapter 7, after this I look, John says, and a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And this is what they're doing. They're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a declaration. It is God's declaration that the gospel is for all nations. I heard a story of an IMB missionary, International Mission Board missionary that was serving years ago in Egypt. And as he was talking, he had the privilege to kind of walk through Scripture and walk sort of historically through the Gospels. And they come to the establishment of the church. And he's walking with someone, an Egyptian resident, native. And they walk through the listing here in verse 10 of Acts chapter 2, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt, and he stopped him. And he said, you're telling me that all of this is for me? You see, in his mind, at least in his mind, in his perception, the message of Christianity was a Western message. It was a United States message. It was a message, in his mind, for white people. That, that was what he was, and then he saw in himself right here that actually the early church is this diverse grouping of people because God's heart has always been a heart for the nations. That's why we sit in this sanctuary. It's because the gospel leaves the Middle East and it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And while we're worshiping in Birmingham, Alabama, and the year of our Lord, 2024, it's because of God's heart to bring the gospel to the world. This is one of the reasons that that we gladly partner with with mission organizations and we, we pray for men and women sitting in these very pews to hear the heart of God for the nations and maybe God as he has called others from these very pews sitting in your own life groups to learn a language, to be embedded in a culture, to use the opportunities relationally 
and even vocationally to leverage for relationships. Why? Because God's heart is for the nations. Not just our nation, but for all the nations. This is a declaration, but it's not just a declaration here in this passage. There is embedded in this passage the very mission of our God. Of course, these are closely related here, but here it clearly, our God's mission is to make himself known to all nations through what? A called people. And we are that called people. We are the church that God is empowering to take his message and spread his fame and his name to all the nations. And this is not a new thing. This is not something that just starts in Acts chapter 2, surprise, surprise. This has been the heart of God from all of the Bible. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12. This is what's amazing about this monumental passage. It reaches ahead to Revelation and it reaches behind to Genesis. And you're reminded of God calling to God by the name of Abram to leave his land, to leave his family uh, or a lot of his friends, and to go to a land that he would give him, God would give him. And he brings his family with him to that land. And he is barren. His wife is barren, Sarai. And God says, I'm going to give you a new land. And I'm going to give you, well, Abram, look up at the stars. Do you see the innumerable stars? Reach down into the sand and hold the granules of sand. You cannot count the number of descendants that I'm going to give you. And so God makes a promise to Abram to make him the father of a great nation so Israel can just be a blessing to themselves. No. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God calls Israel, he calls a people to be a blessing to all the nations. And so we stand here because God called a people, the Israelites, and out of that people comes a Jewish carpenter who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death and on the third day was raised. And the power of his story is a power that we share as the Spirit of God indwells us. God's mission has always been to call a people to spread his fame and his name to all the nations. And all of us have a role to play in that. Now, it looks different. Not every one of us in the sanctuary are called to vocationally pick up our roots, take our family. Praise God, we have, we have people in these pews. And I'm not going to ask to stand up right now. But they, God has stirred in their heart. And God has called them to serve Across, the, uh, across this world. And there are other men and women that have heard that call. And as we give to this church, we support the work of, of families and individuals who are living across this world, leveraging relationships, leveraging language for the sake of spreading the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. And so as we give and we pray as a church, we come alongside of brothers and sisters and we pray for the spread of his name and we pray for the spread of his fame and we go. I mean, there's some of you that are attending this worship service because you know at 12 o'clock there's going to be an interest meeting about short-term mission trips that are going out from our church nationally and internationally and you have rearranged your schedule to be here. Praise God. Now, not every one of us in this room are, are called to do that, but we're all called to pray and we're all called to give and we're all called to go to our neighbors and ultimately for the sake of going to the nations. 
And we have to ask, you know, God, how are you calling us at this particular season? And how can we leverage the gifts that you have given us in time, the gift that you've given us in resources to see your name spread across this world. So there is a declaration. There is the mission of our God. And I want you to not miss this. What is the fuel behind the mission is the power of God. The Spirit of God empowers the people of God to join in the mission of God. Now, it's easy to look back upon this and to miss this and all that I've said this morning here, but the Spirit empowers these early followers of Jesus to take his name and to spread it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I want you to see real quickly here, and we're going to tackle this next week, but it isn't that the Spirit of God is looking down there and saying, who are the amazing, perfect followers of Jesus that I can get to spread his name across this world. The first person who stands up, verse 14, where we're stopping this morning, the first person that stands up and preaches the first Christian message is Peter. And no reputable pastor search team would call him to be their pastor, especially after what he did. I mean, just a few weeks before, you've got Peter denying Jesus three times. At Jesus's greatest point of anguish, Peter is running. At, at, at Jesus' greatest point of need, Peter is a coward in this moment. And now, just a few weeks later, he's standing up and this cowardly Peter becomes this courageous proclaimer of the gospel. What explains this, my friends? It is the power of God. It is the Spirit of God. And that same Spirit uses imperfect followers of Jesus like me. Imperfect followers of Jesus like us. There's some of us that think to ourselves, oh, all of this going, all of this praying, all of this giving, that's for the, the spiritual elite. That's for the people that have it all together. That's, those are the women. Those are the men that God uses. No, this is the truth. The Spirit of God has always used imperfect followers 2,000 years ago and imperfect followers today. So, hey, fickle in your discipleship? Do you know what it is to, at times, feel doubt and despair? Do you know at times what it is to, to be unfaithful? Do you know at times what it is to be overwhelmed and at times to feel hopeless? Hey, you, you are a prime candidate to be used by God through his spirit. You, you're the exact type of person he's always used. And that same spirit, even today, is drawing people to himself. Do you know the book, Everything Sad is Untrue? Came out a few years ago. Daniel Nairi wrote the book. It's a really humorous book. It's a coming-of-age story. Iranian immigrant that settles, if my memory serves me correctly, somewhere in the Midwest. He's in junior high when his mother moves him to the United States. She's a political refugee. It's his story, sort of the, the wonder years kind of of his life. But the more you go through the story, you begin to realize it's really not his story. It's, it's his mother's story. And in a surprising twist, I hate to give this away, but it's about two or three years old. So the spoilers will come in this moment here. But you begin to realize 
that his mother became a Christian as she grew up in a devout, prestigious Muslim family. She was a doctor in her homeland. She had wealth, she had prestige, and she gave it all up to follow Jesus. And she's forced to flee from her home, her family, her friends. She settles in the U.S. as a refugee. The answer or the question is, why does she do this? Why does she leave it all behind? And as, as the author tells his mother's own words, he recounts that she always would say, because it's true. Because it's true. If it's not true, he said, she made a giant mistake. Because she had wealth, and she had prestige, and she had comfort, and she had a career, and she had a devout faith in her own country, her own familial religion. And then she gave it all up for persecution. She becomes a refugee from family and friends, and even politically. And, And he says, and she will tell you this, it's worth it all. Because Jesus is better. It's true. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The whole story hinges on it. This, my friends, is a declaration of the very mission of God and the power of God that still calls women and men from all the nations to leave it all behind. Because he is worth it. Have you forgotten that? Let us pray.